Lord Jesus, we do love you. I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We exalt your name. Wherever we are, wherever we're watching from today, whoever we're with, whatever the situation, whatever device we're on, God, we just, for these next few minutes, we give this time to you. God, you've said you, you, you did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. And so, God, this morning, wherever we're gathered in small pockets, family, maybe we're just by ourselves viewing. God, would your Holy Spirit meet us there? And would we have power in this moment, inspiration in this moment? Would you just show up in such a way, God, that we sense you and we learn from you and we love you more because of it, that our mind would be engaged in understanding you and therefore deepening our relationship with you today. God, that's my, the cry of my heart. And would we feel the unity, though we are not together in person, would we be able to feel the unity of coming together to worship you and exalt you and love you today? I pray these things, Jesus, in your name and in your power and in your might and in your love. Amen. Well, hey, Impact, welcome today. It's good to, uh, to see you. It's good to talk to you, even though I can't see you. I really, really wish I could. I miss you. I want to, just for a second, I want to ask you to minimize your screen wherever you're viewing from, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, whatever time, I want you to minimize your screen. I want you to jump over to my left. If you've minimized the screen, you'll see a chat column. I want you to say hi, if for no other reason to encourage all the people that are there. Others love to see that that little uh, nickname of yours pop up and for you to say hello. So would you take a minute to do that? And then also when you're doing that, notice the tabs over there because as we dive in, I want you to join me using that Bible tab to my left. If you minimize the screen, you can search Matthew. We're gonna be in Matthew today, spoiler alert. And, uh, and you'll have the ability to follow along. We are in the last week, the concluding wrap up of Start Over, our series Start Over that took us through Easter and the Great Commission from last week and the Seder meal before Easter. Uh, just a great series. It's been awesome. Um, the only thing I regret about it is that we're not together and I do regret that. And my heart hurts. We're actually gonna start a new uh, series next week called Banding Together. And the reason we've called it that is because we want to talk about what it means for us to be truly together of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit, uh, even though we're not physically present with each other. So look forward to that. That starts next week. Uh, for those of you who don't know because you've just become a part of Impact uh, Online, my name is Ryan. I'm the executive pastor. Uh, let me be the first or, or, or maybe the second to welcome you to being part of our church. So I want to start today by um, recognizing a phenomenon going on around us that is not COVID-19 and is not e economic disaster, but it is, I think, so 
social disaster and social deprivation. And the only medium or means that we have of actually communicating and connecting, I'm not gonna call it communion or, or, or being together because I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but it is the way we can actually interact and that's using our device and using social media. This phenomenon has just been very evident. It's been weighing on my heart lately. So as we move into a look at the great commandment today in Matthew 22, I wanna start by acknowledging this, this problem that seems to be all around us. And it's just that, that I'm, I'm sensing a really powerful animus uh, toward ideas and perspectives different from our own on things like health or, or, or an egocentric conviction um, on our opinion as fact regarding government for interest. Or, 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 or let's say it's knowledge. Let's say your thing is knowledge and data and just this this almost self-centered uh, or selfish perspective that your knowledge is the only knowledge pertaining to what might happen with the economy. And I'm seeing it create these two groups, these dividing lines. And I don't even think they're necessarily political, but just because I wanna look at that with a little bit of self-deprecation -depre and, and, and awareness, self-awareness through some humor. This last week, the Babylon Bee posted a, a satire, which is to, I think, I think it favored, highly favored, the, um, the side of the equation, we're gonna say that it cares more about their freedom or their rights or their liberty. And that's the tribe they've created. This is what we care about. Uh, this, this satire from the Babylon Bee, um, I think favored that group. So I'm gonna read the satire. It's, it's a humorous talking points and translation on COVID-19. And then I wrote my own version, a satire that, um, that uh, I think and I hope favors those in the other camp that might identify as saying, we care more about our safety, we care more about health, we care more about life than we do liberty, freedom, um, and, uh, and so let's go ahead and do that. To, and let's laugh together, all right? Because it's gonna help us see ourselves better. Um, first talking point in the COVID-19 uh, translation guide, you'll see people say shutting down the whole economy could have some bad consequences. And the translation from the other side is, I want people to die. If you say that, you want people to die. Let's move on. I'm a little worried about government overreach. Translation, I want people to die. Seems to be a no-win situation. What about my constitutional rights? Someone might ask. Translation, I want people to die. Uh, the virus originated in Wuhan, China. Statement of fact, translation, I want people to die and also I'm a racist, the other side might say. And then there's Trump has managed this situation fairly well. It's an opinion, certainly, but I want people to die as I worship at my shrine of Trump is the automatic translation. And then the WHO, World Health Organization, kind of blew it on this one. Someone posted, let's say, on their Facebook page. And everybody else that's from the other side came in and said, I want people to die and I hate Science, that's the accusation on this person. Stay home, you fools, to flip the script. Someone says, just stay home. And the translation 
uh, of the lovers of that side of safety and health. I have an unlimited love for humanity and I believe together we can end death for good, okay? Certainly extreme. Now, to the group that is not all about rights and freedom and liberty and that sort of thing, but they're really, the hill they want to die on is, and no pun intended, uh, health, safety, uh, make, making sure we're protecting each other. They would have a talking point like this. Social distancing will likely help decrease the devastation of this virus. And the translation from the other side is, I hate freedom and want total government control. Or, the government might just be trying to help preserve lives by limiting interaction. The translation on the other side is, I hate freedom and want total government control. There's no win situation. Okay, staying home as much as you can will save lives. Translation, I hate freedom and work and extroverts. I've seen that one several times. Talking point, the governor and the legislature of our state are trying to do what's best while staying accountable to the people. That's an opinion, certainly. I hate freedom, want total government control, and also I'm the only logical and intelligent person left on the planet. I've noticed that particular perspective often. Talking point, this isn't really a virus. It was caused by big corporate greed attempting 5G cellular coverage. If you believe that, uh, I don't know. Translation, I hate freedom and want businesses to die on the altar of the working class. Or here we go. It may be prudent to wear a mask when we go out for necessities. If you're a Michigander, it's now required. Translation, I hate freedom and worship the CDC and want to force people to look stupid in public. Also saw that one two days ago. Uh, talking point, if all these efforts buy us time for a vaccine will lower the death toll and eventually beat this thing. Translation, I hate freedom love Big Pharma and Big Brother, and I'm a pawn for a one world order. Now, these things are laughable. They certainly are laughable. But I wanna take what is very really happening around us, and I wanna look at it in, the, in its fullest as the problem it really is. I think we are tearing each other apart not only is the world and our nation tearing each other apart over these two encampments in a time of admitted incredible distress and uncertainty, but we're allowing our emotions to exercise our anger and our frustration and our disappointment at anybody who believes a little bit in that other camp or even those that are trying some way to balance the two. There seems to be a no win and so we wanna make sure we're right. Um, and, I, and I wanna articulate those camps again real quick because this is gonna be important as we move through Matthew 22. But there is the camp that is all about our life and they are juxtaposed to those that are more concerned with their liberty. And there's the camp that's, that's, that's most concerned about safety and they wanna fight with the people that care more about their freedom. And then there's the group that's interested in health um, and, and they are opposed by those, it seems, they are opposed by those who care about their rights. And so I, I just, all the while, as these things are happening, uh, we, as we bicker and we squabble, the question that has been on my heart looking at the great commandment Jesus gives is, is what if this is the most astonishing opportunity for the church 
universal for the, for the church of, of our Lord Jesus to start over, to be seen differently, for the church to elevate the principles and priorities of what Jesus said mattered more than anything else. And therefore, rid ourselves in this season of our selfishness and our desire to be right by submitting ourselves the way we say we believe to Jesus and what he made our highest priority. And so I just want to challenge you. That's what we're trying to do today is look at this passage from Matthew 22 from this extraordinary perspective that Christ gives us on any crisis, on any circumstance, on any event, global event, local event, whatever that is unsettling, disturbing, or shakes the foundation that we believed in. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 22. And I want to set the tone for you. I want you to know what's happening as we get into this, this tense moment where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders and we unpack it here. First, the triumphal entry happens. Jesus comes, it's almost the end of his ministry. He's got like a week left of his life. He moves into Jerusalem amidst throngs of people, crowds of people calling him king, talking about how he's gonna liberate them. He is going to be their Messiah and savior. He's gonna overthrow Rome. And so there's this hype all around Jesus. And it's, it's, it's full of strife. It's that kind of hype. And out of that triumphal entry, there's the, the disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, his closest followers begin to notice something different, as do his opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. And Jesus is overt about it because he's come to challenge not Rome, not a government. He's come to challenge a religious situation, a religious group that has subjugated what is real and what is true and, and has elevated a legalistic earning of God's favor. And so Jesus, to, to do that, the first couple of days of his entry in Jerusalem, he tells three power-packed parables that are affrontive to the Pharisees. You can go to Matthew 21, read the whole chapter. They are clearly defining a different kind of kingdom, a different ethos than what the Pharisees believed in, lived for, in every way dedicated their life to. And Jesus tells these three parables and it challenges the religious leaders to their face in this last week of his life. And that sets the scenario for Matthew 22 where the Pharisees are coming to, in tra to trap Jesus, like a speed trap. They have set something up where they wanna catch him unawares. They want him to say something he, he, that, that they can then use to arrest him, put him away, shut him up for good. And, um, and they do that in Matthew 22 by first an IRS question, if you can believe it. Hey, Jesus, um, who are we supposed to pay taxes to? How much are we supposed to pay? Jesus performs this, this just extraordinary coin trick with them and sends the first group that, are, that have come to entrap him, the Pharisees scurrying away with their tails between their legs. And while they run, the Sadducees have, have come in and they're ready with this riddle, this, this actually kind of absurd riddle, but it sets up a scenario where it's gonna challenge Jesus' understanding of the law. And again, it's going to trap him. And they say, if a woman marries 
Uh, and then her husband dies. According to our law, her brother would need to marry her so that she's not a widow, so she's provided for. And then it, it, that brother dies, that, that new husband dies, and they go on down a list of seven uh, husbands during life. See, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They believed in pleasing God while you lived. You had one life. When you were done, there was no resurrection. There was no uh, eternal life. And so, and so they're trying to trap Jesus in this idea that what happens, and their question at the end, to paraphrase is, so whose wife is she after she dies and goes to heaven, Jesus? And using, literally moving through the law of Moses all the way back to Abraham, using the tense of a verb, just brilliantly, Jesus deconstructs their argument in a few words and they go scurrying away. And while they were challenging Jesus and the crowd's just going wild because they're so impressed with his teaching, uh, the Pharisees had a chance to reload and they send in their guy, the legal counsel, the, the, the hot young lawyer that's never lost a case. And he's probably got two questions, but he gets only one question off the ground before Jesus stops him. And what this situation sets up is the, is the juxtaposition between religion, which typically, uh, typically expresses itself in its words, and it fails, uh, religiosity fails to then live out what it says or another way to put it would be these Pharisees and these religious elite lived in such a way that they had incredibly clean hands they followed every law to the T but their hearts were filthy their hearts were dirty and and I think it's critical that we know going into this Jesus is going to say love expresses itself in action and sometimes can't even be captured in words Jesus is flipping the script and he's saying listen to me it's actually about the heart before God. It's not about all the rules and the regulations and the things that you have set up to prop up your power and your corner on knowledge and, and your program or your propaganda or the way that it makes you better than everybody else. That's not and never was the intent of God's heart. So he's gonna flip the script on him. So let's read together Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus answered, he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We're gonna stop right there for just a second. So Jesus knows the answer just like everyone else in the crowd would have known the answer. Jewish children, as soon as they could memorize, first memorized the Shema, which is this statement from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And, and Jesus starts there. He doesn't stop there. But I think it's important that we stop there in understanding the depth of these, these, these statements, these words that mean so much more when we just skate through them. I want to talk about, for just a second, the heart. This was to the Jewish people, as Jesus is expressing it, the heart was cardia. It was the very center, the very center of physical being. 
It was all that represented your body. It was your, your whole physical essence would be given. Uh, not just sort of heart pie in the sky that we sometimes think. And the second soul is suche. And suche was the spiritual center of the person. It was the essence of their mystical life. It was, it was where life, the embodiment of life began and ended in the spiritual presence that a person has. Uh, denoted or literally translated as breath, the breath of life that God gave you, the spirit that God put in you when he created you. Do you love him with that? heart of yourself and your heart your body and then last your mind the mind was the center of imagination and consciousness for the Jew so are you actually using this incredible faculty that God has given you to predict a different future to go out as God's agent and make a difference in the world with the mind that he's given you to transform all that is by joining God in the vision and the future that he has for you are you loving him with your heart are you loving him with your soul are you loving him with your mind and as I was praying through this and preparing for this this week I thought there there is a story I want to tell of my my uh, my daughter Savannah a moment in my life where all of those things heart soul mind coalesce in this moment um, and so I want to tell you this story so you so you can maybe understand I think it helped me understand what it meant to love all this way and it was it was uh it was a foggy cold night a couple of years ago and I was leaving work I was going to go to the gym uh one of our other kids had a basketball game and I was going to meet my wife there with um she was going to bring the kids with her. So I got there a little bit early and she arrived and three of our kids got out of the van and came uh, up to the entrance of the gym. We're going to go in together. And as a, a father, a good father, I noticed that there was uh, a missing child. And I said, where's Savannah? And my wife, Heather, looked at me and she's like, well, I, I assume she got out of the van and ran in to the gym ahead of us. I said, no, I haven't seen her. She, she didn't come through here, at least... Uh, unless she beat me here. So there's confusion and everybody gets a little bit alert and we're concerned. Something starts stirring inside. We went in the gym to look around, see if she had slipped through and gotten it. She wasn't there that we could find. And we went back out to the van thinking maybe like sometimes my kids do, that she had stowed herself in the back or in, the, in a seat and just hidden herself there. And she was not in the van, she was nowhere to be found. And at that point, my, uh, my vital signs started to elevate. My blood pressure started to go up. And I started to feel just that sense of fight or flight. My family went, my wife and one of the kids went in for the basketball game. And I took the other two and jumped in the truck to head home. They were going to see if they could find her in the gym. I was going to go home, see if I could find her at home. And I drove far faster than I should have. Uh, with, with increasing panic as I drove, all the fiber of my being, every, every element of my essence starting to worry and, and imagine different possibilities. Um, I got home, the lights were off in the house, pulled in the drive, told the kids to stay there, ran inside and started shouting Savannah's name. 
and moved through the whole house and then did it again. I looked in every crevice, in, in, in every corner, in every closet, like where is my daughter? And my panic went from bad to worse. Just, I could not find her. She was not there. I screamed her name. Um, I started tearing stuff apart. I could not imagine, like, where would she be? I went out to our barn. I thought maybe she went in with the animals um, because she was alone and was afraid. Uh, there, there was, she wasn't in the barn. I went out to our emergency tree in, in the pasture shouting her name. I, I just sort of, I started to lose my bearing and my faculties. I ran out on our road and I just started sprinting in one direction, uh, thinking perhaps she had chased the van down and, and had um, gotten hit in the fog, uh, was laying in a ditch alongside the road. I, I just was not sure, um, and I was terrified, every part of myself. As I was coming back um, to call the police, uh, as, I, as I ran back into our driveway, the neighbor um, I saw the neighbor's headlights coming down the road, and I'll never forget Joy Noon, what a saint, pulled up gently, quietly, calmly, rolled down her window, and she said to me, Ryan, it's okay. I've got her. She's with me. And I remember feeling like there is more to me than just my heart or my soul or my mind. There's this combination of all of me, and it just took a beating. And it felt like something took the legs right out from under me, and I collapsed on the, uh, on the, on the snow of the driveway, just, just down. I, I, it felt like the, the breath had been knocked straight out of me. Just, just ecstatic relief. And I opened up my arms. I remember hearing her say, Daddy. And she opened the door of the van and just rushed out to me. And I was leveled by the power and the intensity of this gift we have been given to love that way. That is the kind of love as I open my arms that I, this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, every aspect of your being. That's what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't stop there. So first he delivers that. The lawyer is ready with his next phrase. He's ready to attack. And he says this, Jesus cuts him off. He doesn't stop after the first command. He says, and, and this is the first time ever. Can you just imagine this lawyer? Ah, he's ready with his next question. Nope, Jesus. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Now what you need to know, you need to pay attention to is this is the first time in the history of, of the world that anyone has taken a fairly obscure verse from Leviticus and coupled it, elevated it to this known greatest commandment from Deuteronomy. And get this, though it is second uh, it is second only in sequence, not in importance in the language Jesus is using here. In fact, is like it. Like demonstrates equal to. The meaning of his language would have been saying this love of your neighbor as yourself is as important as that vertical love that you have for God. So he does something absolutely extraordinary and pivots here. Everyone 
Everyone knew the answer to the first and greatest commandment, but no one had ever heard this, this second and equal to. But Jesus, I want you to know, because we're pivoting here too, this is the most radical teaching of its time. And church, we cannot get this wrong because it is still an, the most radical teaching of all time. That if we get this, if we understand this, it should change everything about who we are and how we then live. This just shook everyone up. Look at this. It, it ends all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what Jesus would have been saying in this, in this illustration that we've got up here. Love God, love your neighbor. This is the principle. All the other uh, books of the Bible, the prophets, the poetic literature, everything else ever written, all the faith of the Jewish people, all of it hang on this construct and this idea. The rest of it, the rest of these are literally just interpretation and commentary on the main thing. I think sometimes we get confused and we wonder and we think we don't have a good understanding of the scripture or we're, or we're timid about whether we know Jesus well enough to say anything. If you find yourself in that place, remember, love God, love your neighbor, principle over all else. And, and, and it moves on, I wanna move on in the story of Jesus in this time frame out of this particular teaching because if you can believe it or not, Jesus actually trumps that statement by in John 13, verse 34. I wanna give you a moment um, to, to get over there on the, on, the, on the tab if you can. So I want you to look this up. Short, short power-packed teaching of Jesus. But here's what's going on now. They've moved out of that situation. They can't, the, the, the lawyer can't trap Jesus. He runs back to the Pharisees and says, Jesus, they're unsuccessful. And, um, and they move into uh, the rest of the week together. And then they're having, which, which, is, a, which is a very um, uh, odd week for the disciples. For Jesus' disciples, they're up, they're upended, they're undone by the events of this week. They're just shaken at their very roots. They're beginning to understand what Jesus is going to do instead of what they've always assumed he was going to be as an earthly king. And in this, in this sequence of events, we come to the Last Supper. Uh, John talked about it in the Seder meal, the Passover that they were going to observe together. And when they're up there, th there's so many different things that occur in this moment that continue to just challenge every presupposition that the disciples had, every assumption that they had about Jesus. For, I mean, he, he washes their feet, which is embarrassing to them. So they're uncomfortable. There's a whole lot of discomfort as Jesus is exposing their feet as their rabbi, doing something you just did not do, and then talking about how they need to serve others. Uh, Judas uh, gets call, essentially called out at the Last Supper, and he leaves uh, amidst all sorts of uh, whispering, and why do we just lose one of our 12? What's going on there? Jesus talks in, in this moment about himself, his blood, being the juice and drinking his blood as a sacrifice and eating his body as the bread. The, the disciples are in, in a cognitive dissonance. They don't know which way is up. And it's in this environment, in this moment, that Jesus gives 
a deadly serious final instruction that the church needs to hear, we need to hear today for what it was in all its power. He says this in verse 34. He says, a new command I give you, a new command. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, just to get the setting, first of all, a new command would have continued to just turn the disciples upside down. You can't give a new command. Well, unless you're God, okay, we're starting to think you really believe you're God and we're starting to believe you might actually be planning to leave us. Um, so, okay, you're gonna give us a new command. And then he says, uh, love one another. Now, that would not have been a new command. I can just see several of the disciples starting to put their hand up. That's not new, but hold on, guys, Jesus, hold on. There's more. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now this, this is where it gets absolutely incredible. He is saying, in this next illustration here, I want you to see, he's saying love, just as I have loved you, is actually the whole essence of the command, of one command, the great commandment, the new command that I give you, all of the Bible, all of the teaching, all of anything else that a church or a people can put together hang on this idea that you will love the way I love you. Now, church, listen to me. Listen, this is what is happening here. Sometimes we skate right over this. Sometimes we don't pay attention to what would have been occurring in the intimacy of this moment between Jesus and his disciples. But just imagine him as I have loved you. Hey, Matthew, Matthew, I, wanna, I want to remind you of something. Do you, do you remember what you were doing when I first called you? Do you remember what your life was like when I chose you, Matthew? I can, I can just see Matthew sort of squirming a little bit, um, looking away, not making eye contact. And of course, Peter, probably his hand goes up. I remember, I, I remember exactly. You want me to answer? No, Peter, I don't. I don't want you to answer, Peter. I want to hear from Matthew. Matthew, I need you to be specific. Do you remember what you were doing? And Matthew's response would have been, yeah, yeah, I was a tax collector. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low, despised by the entire Jewish people. They were the ones nobody wanted to associate with or have anything to do with. It wasn't just an IRS thing either. It wasn't just, hey, I work for the IRS. Not at all. The tax collectors of that day and age would go, they would extort money from their friends, their family, their community. They would take that money, they would give that money to the Roman government so that the Roman government could continue to subjugate that tax collectors, friends, family, and community, including things like crucifixion, atrocities to their women and to their children. The tax collector was the lowest form of scum to the Jewish people. Matthew, do you remember, do you remember what your life was like before me? Do you remember, do you realize how I have loved you over the course of the last three years? Do you realize that when I went to your house, do you remember how absolutely unprecedented, unexpected, shocking, even appalling that that was 
to everybody else, including the other disciples. Matthew, Matthew, hear me. The way I have loved you is the way I want you to love other people for the rest of your life. I want you to go to people in the same despised, disdained, awful, awful, lonely realities. And I want you to embrace them. And I want you to go to their houses and eat with them. And I want you to take care of them. And I want you to subjugate your rights and even your life for the rest of your life to loving people the way I have loved you. Nathaniel, Nathaniel, Peter's still trying to interrupt. Nathaniel, uh, I, I need to ask you, do you remember Nathaniel? Do you remember what you said about me the first time you heard about me? And Nathaniel, I mean, Nathaniel was squirrely anyway. Uh, uh, maybe. Okay, Nathaniel, what did you say about me? I don't, um, I think, well, I remember Nathaniel. You said, what good could come out of the squalor of Nazareth, where Jesus was from? Nathaniel, you actually judged me. You actually didn't want anything to do with me. You actually scorned me before you even met me. Nathaniel, you were racist, or at least you had something against my particular hometown. You didn't even like my stickball team. You were judgmental. Nathaniel, I loved you the first month. I loved you the second month. I loved you the first six months of the time you were with me until you finally started to lose some of those prejudices and some of that treatment towards me. Nathaniel, I want you to go to the people that are the least like you, the people that don't like you, and I want you to love them the way I have loved you, Nathaniel, for the rest of your life. I want you to love people the way I have loved you. And I am asking you, church, today, right now, wherever you are, I want you to ask the question, what does love require of me? And I want you to do it by thinking back and remembering where you were and what your life was like in the secret things that you didn't want to share with anybody, in the areas you were afraid, in the depression as you were by yourself. I want you to think about the way you treated other people, the way other people treated you before you knew Jesus. I want you to consider what life was like before the love of Jesus embraced you where you were, before the redemption of Jesus actually rescued you where you were, and before the life of Jesus was poured out to give you life. That now becomes our imperative as the church to go into every situation every scenario, every moment. I don't care whether you're parenting. I don't care whether it's, it's with your spouse and the insecurity your spouse is dealing with. I don't care whether it's with a friend and the, and, and, and the squalor you find your friend in. Whatever the situation that God has given you to encounter, you have been given a story that you can walk in and you can love people the way Jesus loved you, representing him in that scenario and situation. And then Jesus says this, to conclude, verse 35, by this, 
everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so I just want to come all the way back to this moment together today. I think one of the things that most confuses the world as they look at the church is when, and honestly underwhelms them, is when they see us living in a certain way that does not look like the love that Jesus gave us. It confuses them. It confounds the world. It makes the world not want anything to do with what we give lip service to, just like the Pharisees, just like the Sadducees. I don't want to be that church. Listen to me. Listen to me. It is critical that we get this right. This is, this th this is the thing. This new command is the thing that if we go out in incredibly uncertain times where everyone is feeling the angst of not knowing what tomorrow brings, not a clue, when, when we're worried about our friends and possibly getting sick, when we're worried about our rights and, and possibly losing our rights, when we're worried about our economy and maybe not being able to provide for our family, when we're, when we're terrified that our safety and our security is being stripped away, when, when we're paranoid that the possibility of government overreach is gonna happen, whatever the thing is, in these moments, if we will take what is a wrong, wrong, situation and bring into the, the scenarios all around us, Jesus' love, more important than our self-interest, his presence, it will shake the world in the best possible way and it will bring to them an ability, a line of sight to Jesus so that they can see what he, it is that he has done for us and it will change and transform the face of the world, the face of the church. Church, rise up. This is an opportunity to start over. And we can do it just like the disciples. And I want to leave you with this. In order for Jesus to come, in order for him to give us Christmas, he gave up his rights. He gave up his liberties. He gave up his freedom. As the, as the son of God carrying the glory of God, he left it all and he came to earth to give us Emmanuel, God with us. Already had gotten rid of those. He had already let go of those things. Now he's here in this moment, in the upper room, having the last supper with his disciples. Hours later, he goes into the, the garden of Gethsemane and he wrestles for 12 hours with whether or not to give up the last thing he had to give up for us, his life, as a man, his life. So I don't care whether it's your life or your liberty. I want you to give it up for his mission. I don't care whether it's your safety or your freedom. I want you to offer that up as his disciples. And I don't care whether it's your health or your rights, that should be sacrificed on the altar of his love. The end of the day, this is our moment as the church to accept the new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. And we're gonna head into um, a, a moment of worship together. And I just would ask you to reflect as you listen to our worship band sing again, I love you, Lord. I exalt you, Lord. I want you to examine the places in your life 
that do show your love and the places of or your love for the Lord and the places of your life that don't show that you love the Lord. And I want you to consider them. I want you to put them hands out to him. I want you to offer them and I want you to ask him to make you see and live in this way that he's called us to.